Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice. Hello and welcome to another Wessex LMCs podcast. My name is Laura Edwards and I'm one of the joint CEOs of Wessex LMCs and a GP. And today I'm joined by Dr Gemma Langman. Hi Gemma. Hi Laura, really pleased to be here. Hi, welcome. So Gemma is a clinical, the clinical champion, in fact, uh, for learning disability and autism for the Hampshire and Isle of Wight ICB. And she's a GP in Hampshire. So welcome, Gemma. Thank you for joining us today. Thank um, you for having me. We're going to have a broadcast around autism. Um, and I, I wonder, this is obviously your kind of specialist area and your passion. Can, can you tell us how you've gotten into this area? Yeah, of course. So, um, Really, I don't know about any of you guys that are listening here, but I think that the training that we get on autism in medical school is pretty minimal. I think I probably remembered about an hour. And I think my my what I remembered was someone who doesn't um, make eye contact um, and someone who really likes routine and lining things up in colours. And that was about the limits of my knowledge on it until I became a mum and had a little boy and thought, hmm, I'm not sure whether this child might have something else going on here. Um, And as it turns out, my son is neurodiverse, as is also subsequently my daughter. Um, And so since going through the journey of uh, pre and during and post-diagnosis for both of my children, um, I've become more and more passionate about um, neurodiversity. Okay. Okay. Thank you for sharing that with us. And and you've used the term neurodiversity there. And I said we're doing a podcast on autism. Can you can you kind of unpack that a little bit? What does what does neurodiversity mean? Is it the same yes. as autism? Well, yes and no. So autism is a neurodiversity condition. So it's a neurodevelopmental disorder. So neurodiversity itself. Um, it's about those conditions that you have that are lifelong and they start from childhood, from the moment that you're born. And those people with a neurodiversity, um, their brains are wired to someone differently to someone who is what we call neurotypical. So that's someone who isn't neurodiverse. And within the, the branch of neurodiversity, there are so many conditions. So autism is in there, ADHD, dyspraxia, dyslexia, dyscalculia. I mean, I could go on and on and on. And the key with neurodiversity is to appreciate that, yes, whilst both of my children are autistic, they are also neurodiverse in other ways. One mm. of them is neurodyspraxic, uh, neurodyspraxic, dyspraxic. One of them isn't. Both of them are dyslexic. One of them has ADHD. And so when you have one neurodiversity, they, you are more likely to have a different neurodiversity as well which may impact um, on your well-being and the way that you you view the world. Okay, okay. so that's really helpful. So they're not mutually exclusive. Um, and it's you can't, in, and I think that's sometimes happening, isn't it, in societies, people use neurodiverse interchangeably with the term autism, and they're not the same. They, they, they do overlap, but they're not the same thing. So thank Absolutely. you for unpacking that for us. So I think um, you, you touched there beautifully, actually, on, again, it may be different in medical school now, but um, I'm not sure. I think you probably did better than me, actually, in how much uh, teaching you got <laughs> at, at medical school. So you're right. I think some of us have, have picked up on this as, as we've gone along. Um, but for others, it's, it's a label that is coming up more and more and more. But our own understanding about it um, is, is perhaps not kind of key keeping pace and as, as I said we're using these words kind of they're banded about um with not necessarily 
the understanding that should be behind them. Um, there's been a bit of a focus, hasn't there, recently, particularly kind of nationally, uh, around somebody called Oliver McGowan, and there's been a phrase of Oliver McGowan training. Can, can you tell us a little bit more about that, Gemma? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Oliver McGowan um, was a young lad um, who had a mild learning disability um, and autism. And unfortunately, um, if you and I would encourage anybody um, to uh, watch the the video from his his mum Paula um, telling the story about Oliver about how basically the NHS let him down. Um, and during the leader report, it was um, deemed that Oliver's um, death was avoidable, very avoidable. Um, and a lot of what came out of that was um, knowing that. Clinicians, nurses, doctors, people in the NHS, we do not get trained very well on learning disabilities and autism slash neurodiversity. Um, and had there been more understanding, more um, more learning and um, from the people that looked after Oliver, um, then Oliver's death was deemed avoidable. Um, and unfortunately, he died at a very young age. Um, and so the government um, listened very well to what Paula McGowan and her family had to say um, and have said that we in the NHS need to have um, had training in learning disability and autism. If we choose to, then there is the Oliver McGowan training um, that is coming into force. It's not completely out there at the moment. Um, and um, I'm hopefully going to be delivering some information to you guys um, about what 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 is going to happen with it. Um, but it isn't something that you definitely have to do, but it is the only government approved training. But ultimately what Oliver McGowan training is about is us clinicians learning more about learning disability and autism and how we can best support our patients who may have those. Excellent. So I think, again, it's this thing, isn't it, of there's a, a box um, that's there uh, of named Oliver McGowan for his tragic demise. And the, and and there's a temptation to get focused on, on boxes and ticking them. But really, really, what we need to take from that is the learning. And again, having, having done a little bit of that training online, which is available on e-learning uh, for health, isn't it? Um, then a lot of it is secondary care focused, in fact, and that's that's where those, um, mis those communication errors happened. And therefore, the learning there is really wider than that, isn't it? It's what, what do we, what do we not know? What are our unknown unknowns? Um, and, uh, and then how do we make a difference? So recognising that that probably a lack of awareness in, in secondary care environments possibly could come over into primary care as well. Um, and, and therefore, what, what do we do about it? Absolutely. And I think um, what I've discovered, um, uh, you know, since becoming a mum of, of neurodiverse children is that there are, and I think the rest of you listening here have probably um, discovered this as well, is there are actually more neurodiverse people than we ever thought before. In terms of autism itself, it's estimated that there's one to 2% of the population that are autistic, but that's only taking into consideration those people that have gone through um, an assessment and a diagnostic process. There are countless people out there who are neurodiverse and do struggle, um, but don't have the label as such. Um, and it, it is beyond, obviously, um, Oliver McGowan um, uh, has highlighted the fact that there are major health inequalities um, in the autistic population. Um, 
people who, with autism have poorer outcomes than those people who don't, and they have an earlier death um, than those people that are, are neurotypical. Um, and that I think all of us um, should struggle with um, in the 21st century in the NHS, that a, a massive group of people are being underrepresented. And I think that's where primary care can come in. And whilst the Oliver McGowan training is, is focused on um, the secondary care setting, I think in primary care, with our ability to provide continuity of care, I think we have a real um, chance here to be able to make a difference um, very early on. And certainly, regain the trust of, of, of neurodiverse communities um, because I think there is a lack of trust um, from carers, parents and those people who are neurodiverse because they're expecting to go to a doctor in any setting and get the usual response. Um, and it's difficult. This is not me criticising anybody. It's actually really difficult. And we can go on to this in a moment, Laura. But um, actually what we're trained as part of the MRCGP, all of those things that we learn in terms of make eye contact, open questions. That's an absolute neurodiverse nightmare. Um, that's not what they want. If they don't want to make eye contact with you, they don't want to have to make eye contact with you. Um, they don't want to uh, necessarily want an open question. And I think the other difficulty is, is that not all neurodiverse people are exactly the same. And so we as clinicians and human beings out in, in the public, we have to uh, adjust how we're talking and pick that up very, very quickly in a consultation. Um, and it's not an easy thing, but it does actually make a massive difference to the patient that's sitting in front of you. Okay, there's so much in what you just said there, Gemma. Um, so, so let's go back a little bit because we we we, we confessed and we at the start, and I am now beginning to vaguely remember a lecture where I kind of went through and, and the kind of list of things. But it would be really helpful for you to describe to us that we're all starting from the same place. Can you tell us a little bit more about autism? What are the basics that that we should have in our minds? Absolutely. So there are five modalities to autism. Okay, and I think at medical school I remember there being three. So when I learned that there were five, I was like, five? What are these amazing five? So the five that you've got are social communication, social interaction, sensory sensitivity, highly focused interests, and routines and rep repetitive movements. Okay. And I can break that down all for you now in terms of well, what do all of those mean? And how would someone who, with autism in particular struggle in those five modalities? Um, so you've got social communication, and this is the one where I think people do struggle with because I often get asked when I, I, people find out my children are autistic, well, how bad are they? And it's such a bizarre question, and people make assumptions. So when I say they're at mainstream school, um, or they're being mainstream educated rather as they're being homeschooled now, um, I get, oh, well, they're not that bad then which is incredibly frustrating if you're neurodiverse or you're the parent or care of someone who's neurodiverse because it's not an it's not a learning disability there are people with a learning disability who have autism and there are people with autism who have a learning disability but not everybody who's autistic has a learning disability okay and so that's the one the one thing to remember so there are lots of people who in terms of social communication where we know the people that are nonverbal and they often are slightly more severe in terms of often they can be, um, you know, institutionalized or, you know, th th not necessarily functioning um, in the real world. And I think that's what we get our, what we get our focus on. But I think we also need to remember something called selective mutism. OK. Um, and Greta Thunberg, who we all know is our amazing climate change um, 
advocate she was um she is on the spectrum and she was selectively mute for three years prior to coming out and telling us all to save the world um Mm -hmm. she would only talk to her family Mm -hmm. and when i say selectively mute it's not necessarily a choice it's someone is feeling so uncomfortable in a situation that they can shut down from that situation Albert Einstein didn't speak until he was five years old and then came out with something I'm sure very intelligent like E equals MC squared. And again, his parents were worried about him thinking that he was stupid. Just because you don't talk doesn't mean you're stupid. Okay. But people make that assumption. Um, And so that's something for us to be really um, careful of. And I think clinically, it would be the same as anybody that if we're very good at using silence, that's what the MRCGP taught us. Mm. Um, if someone isn't answering and we know them to be on the spectrum, we are um, doing them a disservice. Something's gone wrong in that consultation and we need to be mindful of that. Mm. We also need to be mindful with social communication and we've all done it. If someone asks an awkward question, you'll just say anything to get out of that situation. And that is often what happens with people on the spectrum. So if I ask them a question that they don't know the answer to, that they, they, that they don't want to answer at that stage, they can often give an answer of, yes, I'm fine when that's not actually what they're saying. And if we don't pick up on that, that's really tricky. But okay. I appreciate is um, a, a very difficult skill. But I would say social communication often um, is um, not something not something that everybody on the spectrum needs to struggle with. And that's the key. And it's what's difficult on a podcast in that what I want you to think of autism is actually a wheel with five spokes with these five modalities on them, okay? And that actually you don't need something on every on each part of the wheel mm-hmm. to say that you definitely are autistic, okay? Mm-hmm. But you do need something in some of the boxes that 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 applies applies to you and applies to the diagnosis. And also, um, so you can have if you look if you think about five wheels, think about how many combinations of people there are. So if you've met somebody with on the autistic spectrum in your in your consultation before, they might be someone who is obsessed with something that loves routine, um, but is a really social creature. So you're thinking, well, the next person that comes in that's autistic, I can talk to them and they'd be really really social. But that person actually not doesn't have any highly highly focused interests, isn't very social, um, but is very very sensory sensitive. And so I think as clinicians, it's really hard in terms of they do not fit into a box. There isn't a list of criteria that we can tick off to say, yes, that person is autistic. And that's, I think, where we struggle. But it, it's no different to anybody else. If everybody in the world came to us and said, I've got central crushing chest pain that's radiating up to my jaw and down my left arm, um, and it feels like an elephant sat on our chest, brilliant, you're having an MI, go into the hospital and have some aspirin and we'll sort you out. We all know it doesn't happen like this. This is no different. It's just that we have more of an understanding that an MI can present in other ways. And this is where I am today in that we have less understanding of how people can present who are autistic. Okay, so that's really helpful. So I think in my mind, I've got this lovely picture of the wheel with five spokes. And for me, because I'm quite visual, I'm thinking of them each having a different colour. Absolutely. And they can, the the length of each of those spokes doesn't have to be equal at all, even though we'd love it to be for a wheel, because that would fit with the analogy. But all of those spokes can have different um, uh, lengths of of, of spokeness to them in the different colours of of how people are individually affected. And just to add to the confusion of that, um, a bit like the Greta um, example, Mm -hmm. is that if someone is feeling incredibly anxious, those spokes can get bigger 
as as a conversation goes on or as a day goes on. So someone might start being very verbal and then suddenly become selectively mute. Um, Mm -hmm. And again, it's something that, you know, um, certainly as a parent, that's something that I I cope with on a day to day basis. Um, But it's something for us to be mindful of uh, as clinicians. Yeah. So, so again, and correct me if I'm wrong, what you're kind of describing is that actually if people get, and I'm, I'm thinking of the word overwhelm, if they get overwhelmed, they, they go into a shutdown um, yes. at, at that point, which again, though a lot of us in who've gone into medicine are, are very social, we love interacting with people, we will find it really uncomfortable if someone goes into a shutdown in front of us and we might not understand because again, if you've got, if you're an extrovert like me, then you know shutdown is not the place that you necessarily go to if you're feeling overwhelmed you might in fact verbalize more so shutdown's really hard to communicate with because there's no information coming back at that point and instinctively like you say we've been taught so for example something simple so if i asked and i'll bring it back to my children if i ask my children what would you like for tea being neurotypical myself i will then launch into do you want fish or do you want sausages? Oh, we had fish last night. Maybe we want sausages tonight. What do you think? Do you want chips with that? Or do you want do, do you want mash? And my poor child is sat at the dinner table thinking, what was the question? I, I, I thought when you asked me what I wanted for tea, I wanted sandwiches. I don't know what I thought. And I've lost them, completely lost them. Um, but that's instinctively what we do in terms of we all know we shouldn't. We all know we say, what is the pain like? And as soon as that person doesn't answer within two seconds, we will go, is it sharp? Is it dull? Is it here? Is it here? And then what will happen is that person becomes overwhelmed and goes, I want sausages and chips. And then you put sausages and chips in front of them and go, I, I don't want sausages and chips. And so then you've got, but I asked you, I asked you, I asked you. And actually, you didn't. You weren't listening. You weren't, you weren't fitting in with those cues that that person was telling you. And that could be the same if someone comes to you with abdominal pain and you say, describe the pain to me. That's an open question that can be really overwhelming for some people on the spectrum. Some people say, yes, it's it's dull and it's colicky, et cetera. But some people might struggle with that. Um, and then to hit them with a load of questions after that just makes it even harder. So you have to give oh. people time. Man, I knew you were going to say that, Gemma. I knew you were going to say give them time, which again, in our current climate... We're sat there going, oh, there's another 15 patients sat outside the door. Um, okay. And really this is it's it just becomes easier for us as clinicians and through no fault of our own to just say, accept what they've said. The patient goes out. They haven't got what they wanted. We think they've got what they wanted and they don't come back. Um, and that's really, really difficult. Now, the one the one thing that we do have is that if we know that person's autistic, then we have a little bit of a leeway in terms of we do need to think but be mindful of what happens in that consultation, which makes it slightly, don't get me wrong, it's not easy, but it makes it slightly easier and that we can, we know when, when, a, when a consultation isn't going well, we do, we can see that, can't we, as, as, as mm-hmm. clinicians. And it's whether or not we make that decision um, as to try and improve it. And that's kind of why I'm here today, to try and just give you a little hint as to why it might be going wrong. So can you give us some tips then, again, just having explored that one, can you give us some tips of like how, again, accepting everyone's an individual so we can't generalise all of this, but any tips of how we can improve the patient's experience, possibly coming in from the door of the surgery onwards to, to being in our consultation? 
Absolutely. So for social communication, it's being mindful of the selective mutism, okay, but also be mindful of how we communicate with a patient. Um, and that comes in a little bit into social interaction in that some people on the spectrum, um, they have a processing disorder as well. So whereas you would ask them a question, they're not ignoring you. It takes them a little while to process the question that you've you've asked them. And I'm not talking an hour. I'm talking give them six, six, six seconds. So say... Um, where is the pain? And rather doing what we do, which is to then go, is it here? Is it here? Is it here? Count six in your head. One, two, three, four, five, six, and ask the same question in the same inclination. Where is the pain? And you will find nine times out of 10, if they were processing the question, they'll say the pain is here and point to you. And then you can think, ah, they just need a little bit longer to process. Okay. And that's only six seconds about 10 minute consultation which i know is precious but it it means that we'll actually get the right answer but the other thing we need to consider is does that person want to speak to you face to face does that person want to speak to you on the phone does that person would they be able to process what's happening in a letter better so some people on the spectrum don't like speaking on the telephone some people on the spectrum don't like um, consultations face-to-face and some people on the spectrum prefer things in a letter so again it's about those reasonable adjustments that we can make for that individual to remember actually it's pointless inviting them in actually they might want to do this on the phone and actually it would be a lot quicker to have a five-minute conversation with somebody on the phone if that's what they want then drag someone in and try 20 minutes overrun to, to get um, get what you need out of them and vice versa if you pick up the phone and someone's struggling on the phone, it's absolutely pointless having that consultation um, with them, bring them in face to face. And it's being mindful of that social interaction in that us neurotypicals are used to smiles, we're used to um, eye contact, we're used to sarcasm, we're used to jokes. Some people on the spectrum take things very black and white. If you say something like, oh, you fell off the horse, get back on again, in their mind, they're thinking, what horse? We think we've given them great advice about, you know, okay, you you know, you, you lost it that at that there, you need to try again. They don't know that's what you mean. They think you've mean you think they've fallen off a horse and then they get completely confused. Okay. So it's about the language that we use with people that are on the spectrum. And as I say, some people on the spectrum, my children watch catchphrase and they sit and they learn the catchphrases and they say, so mum, when would I use that? So that they can understand what neurotypical people are doing around them. Okay. It doesn't come naturally to them, but they're learning how to, how to function in a neurotypical world. And so you can't just make the assumption that someone wouldn't understand sarcasm, but you do need to think about what you're saying to somebody. Okay. So the sensory sensitivity is the big one, I would say, in, in primary care. Okay, and it it is quite um, a tricky one, sensory sensitivity, in that you've obviously got your five senses. You've got eyes, you've got hearing, you've got taste, you've got touch, you've got smell. You've also got proprioception, all right, which is where the dyspraxia comes into it. So some people aren't very coordinated. Okay, but also you've got your autonomic nervous system. So some people on the spectrum have real struggle with knowing the difference between hot and cold. Some people on the spectrum have real problems knowing what pain is their pain threshold is massive and some people on the spectrum have real trouble controlling their bowels and their bladder so they don't have that that build up where you think okay i, I need to go to the toilet um, i think i can wait a little bit longer it's not to 60 i don't need the toilet i don't need the toilet i need the toilet now okay but in a so that's something again for people to consider 
um, if someone comes to see you um, and you're thinking whether or not they're autistic. But imagine a doctor's surgery. Imagine the waiting room at the moment and think about if you don't like certain smells and you're sat next to somebody who's got their ulcer that needs dressing and you're sat next to somebody who's been vomiting all night and you're sat next to somebody who's been smoking or drinking. And then in that, you don't like noise and you've got people coughing, spluttering, shouting at the receptionist. Lots of people keep coming out and shouting different names that you're not sure if it's your name or not. And then someone is sat next to you and they're too close and they're touching you and the lights are flickering. It's an absolute nightmare. And so actually, if you, if you imagine being that person in that waiting room and then you've got to go into a new environment where that doctor is sat there and there's all sorts of things on the walls and you can see a needle and you're thinking, are they going to use that needle on me? It becomes incredibly overwhelming. And so that is where um, if you could have an area that's separate to the waiting room for people who are autistic, that if they're becoming overwhelmed, that they could say, do you know what, I'm going to go and sit in that side room. In the same way that if we had someone with chicken pox, we, we don't like people who are, you know, infected to be sat around people that might be pregnant or, um, you know, immunosuppressed. Is there somewhere someone on the spectrum who is sensory overwhelmed, is there somewhere they could go and sit? Part of my role is in the ICB as clinical champion, we are sending out in our, in our region um, sensory boxes. So in those sensory boxes, we're sending out ear defenders, sunglasses and fidget toys and communication toys that people can use. It will cost you about a tenner to, to make one up in your own surgery. Um, but it might actually make all the difference to somebody who could sit there and play with a fidget toy and that would distract them away from all the other things. And that would make your consultation better and easier rather than having someone who is really overwhelmed. So then we come to highly focused interest. And that's something we can use as a, as a benefit. If you can see that somebody is wearing a train t-shirt, that somebody is colored in the cover yellow, if somebody is wearing lots of crystals, you can go, wow, look, I love that color. And you will be able to build a rapport because they'll think you're safe. If you love the thing that they're focused on, in the same of all of us do, you know, uh, if I, I like rock music, if someone comes to talk to me about all the gigs that I've been to, we have a lot of a better com um, conversation than if they came up and spoke to me about Formula One that I'm not that interested in. So it's about finding what is key to that person. But in someone who is neurodiverse and someone who's autistic, that obsession might turn a consultation around, which means they automatically can trust you and actually they, you can you can use that, you know, if it is trained, you could maybe think about, you know, if you're talking about the digestive tract, you can talk about the the, um, the, the food as the train going through the digestive tract, you know, you can use it for your benefit. The other one that is quite difficult is the routines um, and uh, repetitive um, movements. And the repetitive movements are um, something called a stim or a tick. OK, so people who are on the spectrum, you may have seen them. Um, and that's about sensory seeking. They want to find their senses. You might see someone rocking backwards and forwards. You might see somebody um, running around in circles, um, which isn't what we'd normally want in our waiting rooms. But if it makes that individual feel better, then I say, let them go for it. However, if you're in the middle of a consultation and you notice somebody ticking, and that would be someone keep making the same noise, mao, 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 over again, or making a repetitive movement, that normally means I'm incredibly uncomfortable with what's being said and done here. And again, that is you step back and say, I can see you're uncomfortable here. Do you want to try and tell me what's going on? So the stim can help 
help them calm down. So if someone gets up and starts running around, let them do it. It's making them feel better. If someone starts ticking, then it's, okay, what's going wrong here? This, this is a cue that something's not quite right. Um, and I want to help you. That's the safety here. valve going off, isn't it? Absolutely. Like yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but then with routines, it's tricky because you've told them at 10 o'clock, you're going to have a face-to-face appointment with Dr. Langman. Dr. Langman always runs over. Anybody that's worked with me knows that. Um, and it's half past 10 and you still aren't there with Dr. Langman. That would really upset someone. So if you know that there's somebody autistic waiting for you out there, give them a heads up and give them the choice and say to the receptionist, I'm roughly 45 minutes running late. They can either go and wait in their car, go and get a cup of tea and come back. I will be aware that they're waiting for me. Give them options and at least let them know. So all patients hate waiting. We know that. But if you're on the spectrum and you've got a problem with um, routine, it will frustrate you and you will not have a very good consultation with that patient. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Okay. Loads in there. Um, that's really, really helpful to, to go through. Um, so I, I think we've covered there sort of those uh, five kind of pillars of it or spokes of it that are there for us to think about. And again, having having thought of all the patients and friends, family, wider circle that we've come across, um, then I can definitely relate to each of those spokes. So it's really helpful to have gone through those and to think how they might impact a consultation. And I think the other one that you picked up earlier was about eye contact, which again, we are trained through the RCTP that you know you're trying to get that eye contact um, and I just wanted to pick that up because actually we can deal with that quite easily in uh, in public care and that we can look at the computer can't we <laughs> which is neutral um, but you may also think about where the chair is positioned do they have to look at you in the eyes and not to take offence if they're not looking at you in the eyes um, that actually that m- may be because they find that really uncomfortable um, so uh, break eye contact and um, use your computer at that point <laughs> so um yeah okay right so we've we've covered it we've done a, a brief uh, gallop through there of everything and um if you've got uh, cqc coming tomorrow then this will help hopefully that you feel like you've covered some of the things uh, the oliver mcgowan training does this go into it in much more detail is that what you would see in that no, the, yes and no. It, it doesn't go into the clinical um, side of it because the Oliver McGowan is for um, any person so um, who may meet um, someone with a learning disability or autism. So we're talking everything from councils to libraries to, um, to sports centres. So it's very much about the individual rather than um, what to look for in someone who, who's autistic. So it's it's much less clinical even than, than the brief chat that I've had with you today, but it is incredibly meaningful um, okay. in terms of it is um, certainly the face-to-face training and the, the webinars are led by people with lived experience. So they are people with a learning disability um, and or autism. Um, and so they'd be able to give you their stories, which are incredibly powerful and hints and tips as to how you can can help them as, as patients um, who are neurodiverse. Okay, so that's all to come. As I said, it's taking some time, isn't it, for it to come through. And it's not the only training that you uh, can do. And again, people may want to kind of see how it how it rolls out and then decide what is the best fit for them, their surgery team and members of their surgery team. So thank you so much for joining us today, Gemma. And um, you've mentioned uh, there that it covers autism and learning disabilities. And we're going to do another podcast with you uh, on learning disabilities. So we look forward to uh, seeing you again there. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Have a great day. Bye-bye.
Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice.